Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Elena Dogan. Elena is an entrepreneur, writer, and photographer who is currently working at Vayner NFT. She studied technology ethics at NYU and believes issue and techno philosophy are of grave importance. She's been in the crypto space for three years and has been working with NFTs for a year and a half. She started NF Times, the weekly comprehensive NFT newsletter last July in 2021, and also writes for the Mint podcast newsletter. Aside from these ventures, she consults and assists onboarding of artists, especially women and LGBTQ plus folks and people from other underrepresented groups into the Web3 space. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Elena Dogan. Hi, Elena. Hi, how are you? Good. Welcome to the show. We're excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. So this is actually a very special episode. I was sharing with Elena earlier because this is our very first explained Dear 20-something episode. So like I was sharing with her earlier, we're doing these explained episodes to focus on different topics that 20-somethings are interested in and that our listeners have shared with us. One of the main ones has been NFTs and Web3. A lot of people are like, what is this? What's going on? What do I need to know about it? So we're going to be doing some episodes, which our listeners will see once a month where we focus on a topic and we chat with an expert and we chat all things 20-somethings need to know about that topic. So very excited to be chatting with you. So every episode, we like to start with a bit of a light and fun question, and then we dive into the meat of the episode. So I'm going to ask you, what is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be anything from like a book quote you really like, maybe a conversation you had. I started reading Reality Plus, which is a new philosophy book written by David Chalmers, who's a NYU professor. And it dives into if virtual worlds are actual worlds, which is pretty fun to read. And while it's, it's a philosophical take on the metaverse, without actually calling it the metaverse, really. But... Yeah, I think that book is starting to give me interesting ideas. Uh, I don't know if I can say anything specific, but maybe it's a book suggestion. I love it. That's very helpful. And it's very on brand for you. I know you're obviously researching this stuff all the time. Are there any like light or fun books unrelated to NFTs completely that you've read recently that you love? Or do you feel like you're so deep in this world? That's what you're spending all your time doing. I think I'm spending almost all my time in NFTs and Web3, <laughs> but I'm rereading one of my favorite books. It's a book about Buddhism, and it really tells you more on a practical level why you should meditate, why you should care about Buddhism, and ties into neuroscience a bit, because I love philosophical ideas, but I love tying it back to 
the reality part of it, whether that be psychological studies or facts from physics, etc. So there's some substantial proof behind it. And it really does that. And it's a really amazing book. Oh, that's so awesome. It's very important, I think, especially with spirituality, that you ground it in some form of reality for people to believe it and for people to adopt it. I have this philosophy that like our generation really cares about science. And like, we're really, really moving away from like religion. And we're really just like, almost like our religion is the religion of science and that we swear by it. And so I think it makes it harder and harder to adopt different philosophies like Buddhism and like Christianity and Judaism and all the different sex of religion, because I think people really care about science, you know? So to hear that there's like a book that's kind of blending the two a little bit, Buddhism and science sounds very interesting. Yeah. It's called Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. And I completely agree with you. We are, you know, completely, since the scientific revolution, we love science, we live by science, but weirdly, we're also in a post-truth society right now due to social media and the disinformation that's going on. So while we swear by facts and swear by science and kind of letting go of religion and spirituality, which I believe we need at a certain level, whether you believe in a religion or it's more spiritual, I think it's like each on on their own. But it's weird because we also cannot come together around facts anymore. It's actually a great point. I know it's ironic, right? Like climate change, you know, we all know what's going on. You look at the science, but not everyone can agree because we have social media and we have polarization and we have political parties and we have all the things that make us unable to actually agree on things. That's really cool. Do you consider yourself to be someone who is Buddhist? Like, is that a philosophy that you feel like, oh, I am a Buddhist? Or do you feel like it's some teachings that you just like to, like to read about once in a while? Or yeah, like what's your relationship with Buddhism? I'm so curious to hear. Yeah, I'm really interested in it and I feel like it's a philosophy and a religion that speaks to me a lot and it really helps my thinking process. I actually spent a month in Thailand volunteering at a at a mindfulness project where we completely focused on yoga, meditation, doing works there that uplifts the community. You know, we had like four or five hours silent times where we didn't speak. And I kind of got interested before that. I wanted to go there and experience it. And it helps me a lot. I can't say I'm an you know, amazing med- med- meditator. I'm not at all, <laughs> but kind of, yeah, I try. You dabble in some of the practices. I think we. it's funny, like a lot of people in America really have, like, or at least in like the bigger cities, like meditation is very cool and very hip and very in and yoga and I know some people that go on silent retreats and it's kind of interesting actually that I feel like a lot of people in America, it's kind of become part of like the everyday, especially in LA. Maybe I'm biased because, you know, we're a little bit of an LA bubble, but I do feel like a lot of people here adopt Buddhist philosophies just as like their hobbies and their ways to like calm themselves and connect with nature and things like that. Yeah, I'm sure there's definitely a Western adaptation of it versus the Eastern version of it. And also it's also, you know, over 2,000 years old. So there are a lot of different aspects of it as well. But I think it helps. The main point is to help people in whatever shape or form I think is good for people. It's, it's useful. I love that. Yeah. I'm also not a huge meditator, but I have my moments where it actually, I do meditate and it really helps me. 
but I'm working on it. I think that's a lot of people. It's like the meditating, the yoga moves, the journaling, work in progress. Trying. (laughs) I'm trying. Exactly. Okay, awesome. Well, I think, you know, obviously you talked about the culture of Thailand and maybe people can tell by your slight, slight accent that you are not from America or you were not born in America, at least. Would you mind telling people a little bit about like your background? Where are you from? And a little bit more about your childhood. And then we'll dive into where you're at now. So I'm from Istanbul, Turkey. I have spent all my life up until moving to go to NYU, to New York. So I I was there all my life. Uh, It's an amazing city. I love Istanbul. I loved being there. I went to a French high school there. And then instead of going to France to study there, I really always wanted to come to US to study because I always thought the best schools are here. And I've always been so passionate about technology. And of course, this is the hub for technology as well. I went to French high school, moved to New York in 2017 to start college. And yeah. And now here you are. You stayed. I am. (laughs) We kept you in America. What started your interest in technology? Was it your parents? Was it the city you were in? Was it something specific? Would you mind telling me a little bit more about that? That's really interesting. You were always interested in tech. None of those. <laughs> it like nobody in my family does it, or I didn't have any like role models growing up to look up to in that sense. And I actually like didn't even know what I wanted to be. I went to Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU, which is a school where you can craft your own major. You can take classes from any major you want. And NYU is a huge school. So my education was oh, I kind of like this and I'm curious about this and building up like pieces and pieces to figure out what I wanted to do. And I actually, I randomly took psychology. I fell in love with psychology. I um, studied it a lot, especially like consciousness and cognition and understanding the, the mind and how we perceive things around us. And then I dabbled with philosophy a bit, kind of got into it. And then I realized I love ethics. And then I realized, okay, oh, there's something called technology ethics. But to come back to your question, I I don't know. I always was so passionate about like, oh, an app comes up. How do they think about this? It makes so much sense. You know, there's Instagram. It's only photos. They come up with wine. It's videos. It becomes a huge sensation. You know, there was an app called Photo with three H's or four, whatever. You know, it utilizes GIFs. So how can we find the little areas in our attention span where it's not occupied, how can we create amazing products by figuring out what people want or predicting what people want? That's so interesting. It's so nice you had a space like NYU to be able to dabble and like figure out what exactly it was within technology you were most interested in. I think that philosophy too, I know it's like Gallatin in general, they let you take whatever you want, but I actually decided to not do a minor when I was in school. And I was like, I only want one major because I just wanted to take a bunch of classes I was interested in outside of my major. I was like, I'm going to be a business major. And then I'm going to take some psych classes. I might take some film classes. I'm going to take some computer science. And I just kind of tried to dabble a little bit. And so I think hearing that that was like encouraged and that you did that at your school is very interesting and that you found this niche of technology ethics. So you're studying technology ethics. At what point do you decide Web3, NFTs, crypto, 
is where you're most interested in. Because you mentioned Instagram. There's all these other tech companies you could be working at or interested in. You could go do government policy work on tech ethics. Like, what about the Web3 space was the most interesting to you? And why'd you decide to do that after school? Let me take you on like how I jump from tech ethics to crypto. So I was really interested in the problems in Web2, the problems I saw on Facebook, Instagram, you know, the problems with fake news, echo chambers, how we say certain things that feeds the algorithm, algorithm gets to know us, and then it gives us the content that algorithm thinks and knows that we will want, but then it keeps us in this chamber filled with our thoughts. And we believe that the platforms we use reflect reality as it is, but it's only a reflection of me, thus creating, I believe, the issue that we were just mentioning, how we can't resolve any of our existential problems because we can't really come together and decide to be on the same page about facts. And then I saw the, all these issues and I initially wanted to do a PhD and, you know, dive more into it because I love writing philosophy papers. But then I actually worked at a crypto company, a blockchain company three years ago called Threefold Foundation. And they are a layer zero kind of foundational peer-to-peer network that is trying to bring internet to underserved areas as well. They have a lot of like work they do in Africa, for example, and how using their technology, they can bring the things that we all have on internet to people who need it. And then I really love, love that, but I kind of stopped my interest in crypto because I was diving into philosophy. And then I had a friend who kind of reintroduced me to NFTs. And then I started reading about it, learning about it. And then I realized I kind of had this idea before, but I didn't connect the dots fully how crypto can be a solution to many of these issues in Web2. For example, data privacy. Right now, platforms know everything about us. They watch everything we do. They know how many seconds we look at every single post. If we go back, they know about everything we do in our lives. And data is more valuable than oil right now. It's the most (laughs) important currency. And for example, with peer-to-peer networks and crypto, instead of platforms owning your products, platforms owning your data, you can actually own your own data and you can decide what you want to do with it. So it's just like one of these examples how crypto can just change how we experience internet completely. It's so interesting to hear how your trajectory really did start with like a fascination with a lot of these Web2 platforms, knowing they could be better and then seeing Web3 as that solution. Would you mind for our listeners, maybe explain just quickly the difference between Web2 and Web3. And I know you talk about how in Web3 you can own things, you can own your data, but would you mind just sharing a little bit more about how you think about the difference between what we all know of as the apps of today and Web2, that phase of the internet today versus where it's going? So let's even take another step back and talk about Web1. So Web1 was between 1990s to around 2005, only read functions. So these are early web pages published that you could only read. For example, Yahoo. And then we come to Web2, which is roughly between 2005 and 2020. And those are siloed, centralized services 
run by big corporations. And most of the value accrued on these platforms stay within those platforms. And they became you know, the biggest companies in the human history. And those are Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, mostly social networking web services where you read, but you can also create. So you have the ability to write. And then we come to Web3, which is slowly starting. I also want to say, you know, there is no one definition of Web3. There is no one definition. If anybody gives you, it's preliminary. What it will become won't be what we envision right now. But those are platforms that are owned by users. So we get to collectively own the platform and make money off of what we create. So the value that we put in is reflected back to us. So if you think about you know, web one, read, and then web two, you write, and then web three, you read, write, and also own. That's very, very helpful. Thank you for walking through that. And I know our listeners will really appreciate that as well. I think it is kind of a crazy concept, though, to imagine that you could own things on the internet. And that's where you get into more of the nuance of like the technology. You know, the blockchain technology allows you to be able to own things on the internet. And I think people have also said that a lot of the Web3 technology and like where Web3 is going is what the internet was originally intended for. I mean, we can't always imagine all the different outcomes it could be, but do you share that philosophy too, that this idea that everyone contributes to this like, you know, this internet space, but there isn't like abuse of power by big tech companies and people actually get to control their own data and control what they post. And do you feel like that is really what the internet was intended to be like, what this Web3 is becoming? Yeah, completely. Even the founder, inventor of World Web, Tim Berners-Lee said, the web, as I envisioned it, we have not seen it yet. The future is still so much bigger than the past. So even as he envisioned, and actually Web 1 versions are decentralized, usually. During Web 2, it was a sense of innovation. You know, these companies didn't know they would become this huge. I believe they had the best intentions in heart. Advertisement model just had to come from, you know, they had to find a way to make money. And then they had shareholders come in and so much expectation. And then it was very difficult to get out of that system. But I think the things that we own digitally will be incredibly common because our lives are becoming more digital. And if we think about kids who are 13 or they're not 20 somethings, but 10 somethings, they spend most of their times online and they care about digital outfits, digital representation, you know, for better or worse, more than real life. So I think it's inevitable that we need some scarcity in the digital world to be able to, you know, have an economy there or IP rights, for example, like if you don't have an original and you can copy it millions of times, how are you going to really know what's real and blockchain and NFTs help with this problem? Yeah, absolutely. Because like you said, in the digital world, things can be copied a million times. And so you have to figure out what is the scarcity piece, which is, I think, what is so unique about it is we're at a place now where we have kind of figured out scarcity, whether it's like a limited amount of currency that's available or only 10,000 are created of a certain project, whatever it may be, we have figured out a bit of scarcity so that digital goods have value, which is a really interesting point. Before we keep going, I do have to ask, have you seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix? I feel like you would love it if you you have. Okay. Because it's so interesting to hear you talk about like, you really think they started with good intentions and 
you know, maybe corporate greed and the need to generate ad revenue as their literally only source of funding a lot of the time kind of led to all this. So it's interesting. What did you think of Social Dilemma? Did you share the philosophy and were you like horrified or did you feel like you kind of already knew all along what was going on? I loved it. I probably watched it like 10 times. <laughs> and I love the Center for Humane Tech and Tristan Harris, who you know, made the, the documentary. I completely agree with you know everything that's that was said there. I learned new things. I knew a couple of things, but I think everybody should watch it. And I feel like documentaries like this, especially because there are people from those companies that are speaking, you can understand it a bit better. Yeah, it's so wild to see like personal anecdotes, like whatever the documentary is, like having people actually say like, yes, we did intentionally manipulate this product to make it so that you were more likely to come back and get dopamine hits. And it's so crazy to hear because I don't know, at least I feel like we can get lost in the numbers sometimes. Like, you know, if you're reading an article and it says like 85% of XYZ say that you're more likely to do this. But when you're watching a documentary and you see someone's face and you see them say, oh yeah, we intentionally manipulated it to be this way. It's like, so much more shock. I at least think that's been my experience. I agree. Okay. So you, let's go back to you. So thank you for pausing to explain that. I want to make sure that we're doing that throughout the conversation because I feel like you and I could get into like the weeds and the nuance of some of this stuff. And I'm like, I want to pull back, make sure we all are on the same page. So, so you're interested in basically like we talked about web two companies, but knowing that there were some issues and you dabbled in crypto for a little bit, but then you got back engaged with NFTs. So what was that timeline that you started to get back involved with NFTs? And can you tell me a little bit more about that light bulb moment where you were like, oh, this is it. Like, this is the thing that I think is the future and that I'm really excited about. So this is February last year, so 2021. I'm talking with a friend who works at two different crypto companies at that time. And we first like talk about just, an example, something that he was passionate about, he was interested in. And then I learned about the concept of, my, of NFT. And then I stopped for a moment. I'm like, okay, what is this? And then I legit just started reading about it like three, four hours a day because there was so much happening. There's the financial part with decentralized finance. There's DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. And there are different... No ways you can t- use technology. There are even as like what an NFT can be is a million things. And then there's so much more around it within the blockchain ecosystem. So I was just fascinated by it because a couple of years ago when I was working at that company, Threefold, what we were kind of tasked with was creating a user platform for people to use their technology. But it was difficult to imagine how people could actually interact with this. How could they interact with blockchain? And I think that was missing for years. That's why people did, couldn't really conceptualize it in their heads. It was just very abstract. And then I saw with NFTs and with these marketplaces that are coming up that it would be something to pay attention to. And I honestly just fell in love with the concept. I fell in love with what people were doing. And it was my last semester at school. And I decided to just focus on this. (laughs) And go all in. And you were also pretty early, you know, there has been a huge wave recently, but you got started. I mean, some people that got started in 2017 were early, but I'm just saying like in the big scheme of things, you were actually pretty early to this and had an interesting background with your 
tech ethics interest, NYU. Was there like an NFT project specifically that you were very excited about or was it more the technology that you were like really excited about? More the tech. I wish it was the project. I honestly don't pay attention to specific projects, but you know, I got in before so many big projects launched, but I was just more excited about the tech. So I was just fangirling over that and not really thinking about the trading parts. Would you mind telling people what exactly is an NFT? So I think a lot of people, the joke is it's like an image of probably like an ugly ape with like three colors. And you're like, how is this selling to Justin Bieber for a million dollars? Or maybe it's like, I don't know, CryptoPunk that has pixelated images of things. You're like, what even, that is even not even a thing. What is that? And then you hear Mark Cuban is doing NFT drops for the Mavericks games. And we hear all these different things. And so I think it can be confusing for someone who hasn't gone as deep as you have to understanding the technology behind it. Would you mind just giving like an overview of what is an NFT in your mind? I will take a couple of approaches to make sure that it's very clear. It stands for non-fungible token, right? What does fungible mean? So something that's fungible is a US dollar. So $1 is equal to $1. Something that is semi-fungible could be a concert ticket where you can exchange the concert ticket for $200. And something that's non-fungible is a completely unique asset. So it can't be swapped for something with an equal value. So NFTs are not just images. That is not what it is. False. We're debunking it right here. It is not just JPEGs. <laughs> Thank you, Elena. It is wrong. It is wrong. And what it is, is NFTs represent ownership of a unique digital item on the blockchain. So, for example, if you own Mona Lisa and you have a certificate that says you own Mona Lisa and someone comes in and you know, steals it or forges it, even though there might be a million copies of Mona Lisa, you can still say that you own it because you have the certificate of authenticity. And blockchain works in a similar way where this all these certificates are transparent and are all on blockchain for anyone to see. While this is like the definition, what an NFT can be pretty much anything. So how I like to think about NFTs is think of it as like a box, a carton box. And the picture you see is just pasted on one side of it. So when you look at the box, that's what you see. But what an NFT is, everything you put inside. So that picture and the certificate of authenticity are inside, but you could say, you know, Diplo is doing a drop, for example, and giving access to a front row seat in his concert. It can be exclusive events. It can be access to, you know, you can FaceTime with, with let's say Elon Musk does, does a drop. You can FaceTime with Elon. That can like, all these can be unlockable contents that you can put in. Let's say if you had a board ape, then you would be able to get, you know, in that box of board ape, there was the mutant apes that they, they airdrop. There was kennel club, the dog NFTs that they had. They have all these partnerships. They have, you know, partnership with Adidas. So they got early access to be able to mint that NFT with Adidas. So NFT can be basically anything you can imagine. They can be artworks, they can be generative art, collectible art, music, 
know, membership or access passes. It can be metaverse avatars. It can be metaverse land or domain names. It can basically be anything that you can put your mind to. It's more about understanding the technology so you can utilize it in a way that serves you. You know, people will say NFTs are bad. You don't say a phone book is bad or like a printer is bad. It's just the technology. It's about how you use it. That's such a great point. And I think what I'm hearing you say too is that what's so powerful about NFTs is that we can basically prove that you own it online. So you can have giveaways where you can FaceTime Elon Musk. Someone can say on Kickstarter, you know, let's raise a billion dollars and then we can, you know, FaceTime Elon Musk, whatever. There's other ways you can do these things. You can buy front row tickets to Diplo. But what's special about NFTs is that if you prove ownership, which is what we're kind of talking about, if you own an NFT or you basically just like prove something, then you get access to it. Am I thinking about that right? Like, because when you talk about how NFTs can be clothing and they can be giveaways and they can be art and they can be all these things, like, can we talk a little bit more about the technology? Because I think for me, one example that someone gave to me that I thought was really helpful is it's almost like a 100% correct receipt. It's almost like, let's say I say I own this piece of art. My NFT is almost like, if I'm trying to explain it in terms for me to understand, it's like, a receipt that can't be altered and can't be hacked. So it's like, I can prove with the blockchain technology, whatever that is, and we don't have to get into the nuance of the exact technology, but it's basically like a foolproof receipt. It's saying like, you definitely made this transaction at this time and it was done on your card. How do you think about it? Because I know it can be so many things. It can be hard to kind of like consolidate it into like these clear, clear, clear definitions and explanations of like what it actually is. That is correct. When you buy something or do any kind of transaction on blockchain, everything is written there and it's immutable. So you cannot, nobody can change what happens on blockchain. There is no edit button. You know, a good way to think about blockchain is um, like a spreadsheet and all the transactions are written in, in a row and uh, you're unable to edit anything back. And it just provides this transparency of who owns what. When did they buy it? How much they bought it for? How much they sold it for? So it's giving the art world and us a way to think about, you know, the art industry or any kind of transaction instead of happening behind closed doors. Like anyone who has access to internet can go and see who owns what entity. Okay, so I'm really excited about this analogy you just said because I think it actually will resonate. It's this idea that imagine it's like a Google Sheets document that everyone has the link to in the entire world, but it's view only. So you can't edit any of the cells and it has like, what's the name of it? Who bought it? When, what time, whatever. But it's like a Google Sheet that's view only, right? So you can't edit it, but also anyone with internet, like we're talking about, can like open up their Google Sheet, if you will, if we're following this analogy. And they can see who actually bought something at a certain point in time and who owns that thing because they bought it. Is that kind of it? Exactly. Okay. So I think that that's also really helpful to like very basic level explain the technology behind it. It's just you can basically have a visible receipt. Okay. So back to what we're talking about, NFTs. So you have taken on some pretty crazy opportunities in the past 14 months, 15 months since you got started and had this conversation in February. I share this in your bio, but just to refresh everyone, you're now working with Gary V at Vayner NFT, writing about this, which is obviously a very complicated thing to write about. And then you have your own newsletter, very popular newsletter, NF Times. 
sort of like New York Times, but NF Times. So maybe let's start first with Vayner NFT. It's funny, I think a lot of people have heard about NFTs through Gary V first. So can you just tell me a little bit about your role at Vayner NFT, how you got into it, how you like it? And, you know, I think more importantly, like, what is it like trying to write about this stuff? I can't even imagine. It's hard enough, I think, to write marketing copy on like selling chips and selling shirts and things we all know. I can't even imagine having to write about things that are so complicated. So can you tell me a little bit more about Vayner NFT and, and your experience there so far? I love Vayner so much. I started, well, Vayner NFT got founded in August and then they reached out to me to join in November. And I mainly write there, but uh, I also, because it's, it's not a startup, but when I started, we were just 20 people. Now it's over 40 people. We are hiring nonstop. But essentially what we do is we help educate brands, especially Fortune 500 companies about Web3, about Metaverse, NFTs. And then depending on our scope, we help them launch their own projects as well. So I work with Pepsi on their Pepsi mic drop. I've worked with Robert Mondavi Winery in San Francisco, Coach, we work at Budweiser, and I mainly work with Coinbase right now uh, as they are launching their own marketplace. So there are a lot of very smart people who work at Vayner. It's pretty fun, and it's really cool to be working on something that I love, being able to write about it, being able to work with people who are so good at what they do, and also work with huge companies that are very established companies and navigating them through Web3. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys do just a lot of like almost like agency work where you consult with these big Web2 companies and you help them figure out how they can pivot, if they should pivot or how they should participate in this Web3 space. So it's kind of the best of like seeing the corporate side, seeing the startup side, seeing Web2, seeing Web3. Is that right? Like the the right description of what you guys do there? Yeah, very much. Because, you know, VaynerMedia is an agency and... We have a lot of shared clients as well. And the work is exactly as you described. I know this is a bit of a cliche question, but I do think especially hearing you talk about it, I can see your passion and it just oozes through you. And I love that. But there is like a bit of like a balance thing here that I think I've seen a lot with Web3 and NFTs, which I'm sure you've seen too. A lot of people in this space, it can become all consuming and it can become like your life. And I mean, you were even saying when you first learned about it, you were like reading like three or four hours a day, probably while doing school, probably while having another job. Like it can be a lot. Things change all the time. And how do you think about balance when it comes to this space? Are there things that you do to like remove yourself from it? Are there areas where you like maybe intentionally focus? I'm going to learn a little bit more about this sort of different area today. How do you think about balance when it can be so all consuming, like night and day? It is unfortunately a 24 hour seven kind of industry. And I do personally struggle with balance in that sense, because I mean, just you know, from what I told you about school, you know, I couldn't decide on one topic to focus. So I studied so many different things. And again, in, in this space, I know there are, you know, there's a tech part, there's DAOs, finance, NFTs, metaverse. Like there's a lot of niches that people focus on. And I really enjoy learning about all of them. So I do feel that pressure of constantly having to, did I read everything? Like I want to listen to all the podcasts and watch all the YouTube videos and read all the articles that come up, but also be on Twitter to 
you know, listen to spaces, but also do the work and actually write and produce content. So I think it's a bit difficult. How I try to approach it a bit to make sure, you know, I probably look at a screen every waking hour, unfortunately, <laughs> just from working from home and just everything I do being on a computer. But I try to, at least on the weekends, one of the main reasons I moved to LA was the nature here. And I, I tried to go on hikes, you know, just squeezing in some screen-free time. But it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Would you have a favorite hike in LA that you recommend that you would say is like it? I think I like Malibu ones for sure. I like the you know, Ryan Canyon, the most popular hike spot probably in LA, but <laughs> yeah. it is pretty and it's like very close to me. So, Okay, awesome. And so you're at Vayner NFT, you're enjoying your work, and then you decide to start the NF Times. Did you start this, or maybe I have the timeline wrong, did you start this before you got started at Vayner NFT? Like what was the timeline there and why did you decide you wanted to start your own NFT newsletter? I started before. I started in July and I started Vayner NFT in November. So they like saw your probably newsletter and saw what you were doing and said, let's grab her. Yeah. That's why I'm super grateful to have started because I had the idea originally in March, April, but I thought, I'm sure like everybody who wants to start something, a newsletter or a podcast, maybe you experienced this too. It's like, okay, I'm going to start it, but how many people are going to read it? How many people are going to be subscribed in the first, you know, first month, first week? It's just like you want... Kind of we're a bit conditioned for instant success at this age, but I still wanted to start it because my thinking was, okay, I'm reading about this like hours a day. This is obviously so important and it's going to be really big. So how can I make sure that different artists, people who don't have time to spend you know, hours on Twitter, on Discord, reading about these news, be updated about what happens uh, without needing to spend too much time. Because people who are working or creating art, they can focus on that. And how can I create value for people, you know, my age, people who are maybe not in the space where they can, you know, have early knowledge about these topics, or especially women too, because I think that's such an important part with how in back two. There's so little representation of, you know, a lot of different minority groups or people from different backgrounds. But, you know, especially women, I feel like this is a new frontier that we can take space. And because we're just building, which is another thing that makes me so passionate about Web3, because I told like when I was little, I thought I was so passionate about these Web2 companies, but I thought everything is being done by the time I can actually do something, you know, there will be no ideas left to produce, no apps needed to develop anymore. But now with Web3, there's so many possibilities and so much opportunity. It's a completely positive sum game where, you know, I believe in Ethereum, you believe in Ethereum, value goes up. So I think that's why I'm super passionate about it. There's so much to do, but also woman can be a part of it from the get-off and we can actually create the internet that we want to see with the values that we care about early on so the ripple effect continues when we put people from different backgrounds into positions of power. 
I think that is like probably the most, I don't know. I think that's the greatest sell of Web3, honestly, especially for women and especially for our listeners, because we have mostly female listeners, is this idea that when you think about the Twitter founder, the Facebook founder, the Instagram founder, the Google founder, like they're all men and they're mostly all white. And there are a lot of them are mostly American from what I understand. And, you know, you see charts all the times of like, you know, all the biggest companies that came out of like the 2008 recession and all that stuff. It's mostly all men and mostly all white. And that is why the internet that we experience today and a lot of the companies that are so big and exist today are run and were started by that demographic. And don't get me wrong. I think there are so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful men and white men. And I think they're amazing, but you can't create platforms and you can't create companies for all people if you don't have all people in the room. And I think exactly to your point, we're basically creating the new age of the internet. I mean, it's a bit dramatic, but it's true. I mean, the internet is being recreated in front of our eyes and we have a chance to do it better this time. And we have a chance to fund and support women, minority-owned founders, like all the things that we want to see. LGBTQ+, I know you mentioned as well, like we should see those founders and those builders actually creating the internet of the future if we want it to be for everyone. Because like ultimately, we know this, but like diverse teams and diverse founders create better products, not only like performing wise, but they meet the needs of everyone because they have everyone in the room creating it. So I completely agree with you. That's what I get excited about is this idea we can like recreate it better. Like we can do it better. And it's people like you who are sending these like quick newsletters that are explaining it to folks who maybe are working so hard, working multiple jobs, maybe aren't ready to take a chance yet, aren't, don't have three to four hours to spend because they have to take care of their kids or they have multiple jobs or whatever it might be, but they still want to learn about the space. And so I think what you're doing is really awesome. And I commend you greatly. I think it's great. You can't really not have a platform that is for everyone. You know, most of the platforms, it's white, 20 to 30, 40 year old white guys in Silicon Valley. It is an extremely small demographic and they make decisions that affect billions of people daily. And it obviously, and of course, has so much effect in our psychologies, you know, in our experiences, how we see the world around us. And we should definitely have more people. And, you know, now we have data that actually shows diverse groups lead to better products, but we need to actively do it and actively be in these positions because, you know, I, I love the saying when it's like, if not now, when? And like, if not you, who? You know, if you want somebody to do it, you should just do it. I love that. Oh, that's so good. So one of my final questions for you is just, so let's say someone's listening to this conversation and they're like, okay, you sold me. I get it. I need to learn more about Web3 and NFTs you know, maybe they don't make some crazy jump tomorrow, but they understand the importance of it as it being the future and that they want to figure out more about this space. What would you say are like the first few steps you would recommend someone do? Obviously, you know, we'll privacy it by saying you have to do all your own research. We're not telling you to invest in every NFT under the sun. Like you got to do your own thing. But if someone wants to just learn more, are there any founders or, I mean, obviously NF Times people should subscribe to, but, you know, what are like the things, the founders, the projects, the books, the articles, the journalists, like what are the places you recommend someone should go? It's extremely important to do your own research. We even have a, you know, acronym for it, C-Y-O-R, Dior, because 
it's a very speculative market. The technology itself, I have a hundred percent belief in it will be with us. But obviously, there are a lot of NFT projects, and most of them will fail, just as if how many companies in the dot com boom failed, but the ones that succeeded became the largest companies in throughout history. So I would recommend really understanding the community too. That is a key point that I learned a bit late. You know, being on Twitter, Twitter Spaces is amazing to get a sense of people. There are a lot of good resources. My favorite YouTube channel is The Defiant. It's a really beautiful, beautiful, like the videos there are not explainer. There are actual movies that make you understand concepts. And also like if you want to get more resources, feel free to DM me on Twitter or email me and I'm so happy to send you. Like I have a list of introductory articles, things that that would be helpful that I can send over. And there's also a New York Times article by Kevin Rose that he published last month, I think, about what are NFTs, what are DeFi, what are DAOs, what is DeFi, kind of going over the whole thing. But that's more on the skeptical side and definitely not a crypto native article. So uh, you might also want to check out crypto native. Okay. Well, you got a little bit for everyone. A little bit of everything. And and thanks for making yourself available to people. I think a lot of times people just don't know where to start. And there's a lot of people just trying to get rich quick. And there's kind of the negative side of this stuff. But hopefully this conversation was really more about like the exciting elements of the technology and how you have, you know, really positioned yourself as someone who is an expert in this space. And, you know, you're close to the action. And like you said, working with really smart people and then publishing what you see and hear and think is interesting in your newsletter, which I think is extremely valuable to everyone. So can you tell everyone a little bit more about where they can follow you, maybe DM you if they have questions and where they can subscribe to NF Times? So subscribe to NF Times from nftimes.substack.com. It's also on Twitter, NF underscore times. And you'll get weekly, every Monday, digestible news about everything that's happening in the NFT space and how it affects different industries. And you can follow me on Twitter, Elena underscore ETH, and can email me, elena.nftimes at gmail.com if you have any questions. Perfect. So many good things. Well, Elena, this has been so fun. Thanks so much for chatting with me. This is such so fun to do. Yeah, it was so nice to chat with you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 